Welcome to the global phenomenon, Surviving the Survivor, where we bring you the best guests in all of true crime. This is a STS special, Surviving My Biggest Case. Here's your host, Emmy Award-winning journalist, Joel Waldman. What's up, STS Nation, and welcome to another episode of Surviving the Survivor, the podcast that promises to bring you the very best guests in true crime and also the very best stories today. We give you an STS special. It is called Surviving My Biggest Case. And uh, you might recognize this best guest. It is Scott Roeder. He is founder of The Evidence Room. He is an internationally recognized evidence specialist who has consulted over 1,500 cases uh, since 2001. He employs a team of specialists with backgrounds in art, 3D modeling, forensic animation, motion graphics, time-based media, biomedical illustration, architectural design, lawn crime, and shooting scene reconstruction. And he hosts a podcast called Crime Scene Time Machine. Crime Scene Time Machine. Uh, Scott, welcome. Thanks so much for doing this. Uh, love the uh, the land right behind you. Um, you're muted. Got to unmute you. And uh, <laughs> um, let's get right into it. Everyone has heard of uh, the person behind your biggest case, uh, Oscar Pistorius from South Africa. Um, tell us, first of all, just a, a little bit about him. He qualified for the Olympics despite being a double amputee. Um, yes. And uh, how, how do you get how do you get involved in the case? Well, a little bit about Oscar first. You know, he was born with a degenerative bone disease where uh, he didn't have bones uh, on his leg uh, beneath his knee. Uh, so his legs were amputated, uh, I think, at birth. And um, uh, he had a very underprivileged uh, upbringing. And ultimately, he found this innovative uh, medical technology where I think he was one of the first athletes to use um, what they call the blades um, to, to, uh, to run. And as a result of that, he earned the nickname, the blade runner. Uh, he was a, uh, I think a gold medal, uh, 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 award winner in the, um, uh, handicapped Olympics. I'm not sure if that's what we call it. Um, and Paralympics, I Paralympics, that's yeah. right. Uh, I mean, very exclusive. I mean, these are tremendous athletes who have physical disabilities that they've overcome to be these tremendous athletes. I mean, he was on Jimmy Fallon and, uh, you know, uh, Johnny Carson, Jay Leno, all that stuff. Um, you know, he was on the cover of Time magazine. He had a contract with Rolex and Nike. Matter of fact, uh, the, the Nike a ad guy like yourself, too, is a good looking dude. Good looking guy, real good looking guy, charming man, very soft spoken. Mm-hmm. And when I met him, um, you know, and, and then the ironic thing was the, one of the last advertisements that uh, he had before this uh, you know, horrible thing happened uh, was a campaign by Nike saying, be the bullet mm-hmm. in the gun. And it was like him shooting out of a. Wow. Of a um, no, as you can imagine, you know, uh, uh, I couldn't imagine. I, I had never been to South Africa before, but I learned after I've gone there and spent a considerable amount of time there. That it's not like growing up in America. Um, you know, it's a very dangerous place. Uh, this was still I mean, this is post apartheid, uh, but this was right on the verge of um, uh, Nelson Mandela uh, being on his uh, deathbed. Uh, the country was under 
kind of a real tension at that time. And the tensions between the, the black Africans and the Afrikaans, which were the white Africans, um, was so tense uh, that um, you know, everybody was on edge. There were uh, stories of these horrible crimes being uh, committed in the in the countryside, uh, in Johannesburg, it was not uncommon for tourists to be stabbed, uh, you know, by by the locals. The poverty level between the two groups of people was such an amazing disparity. Um, you, I would think, you know, America in the late 1800s would be that divide that they had at that time. Um, so a very difficult place to grow up in. And he was thrust onto the national scene in South Africa, really as the poster boy for the country. Uh, and he was a philanthropic individual, um, uh, but he became a superstar. Uh, and with becoming a superstar comes a lot of pitfalls. Um, ego, he's a young man at the time. He was in his 20s, early 20s. Uh, and he was worldwide star at this point. What year is this that we're talking uh, this would be 2008. 2008. Okay. Yeah. And, um, no, I apologize. Uh, but that's when he was, at, I think, at the peak of his career. The, 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 the murder happened um, uh, uh, 2014. 2014. Okay. Yeah. So that's uh, uh, Valentine's Day, 2014. Which made global headlines. A huge story. Huge, yeah. huge story. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the media down there, um, you know, this was front page story every day, every every single day. And I think in the, in the United States, it got some you know headlines on CNN and so forth. But ESPN, I think, covered it more than anybody. Uh, and uh, as it was a you know kind of considered the OJ Simpson case for South Africa, uh, although I don't. Yeah, and for those who don't know, um, he had a very beautiful model girlfriend. And tell us what what kind of transpired. Sure. Well, yeah, he was uh, uh, dating uh, uh, a beautiful model by the name of Riva Steenkamp, um, and it was a relatively new relationship, which is about a year uh, they had been uh, going with each other. Um, and on uh, Valentine's night eve, uh, she had come over to his house. Uh, they weren't exactly living together, but they spent a lot of nights over together at that time. Uh, and uh, they had dinner, you know, they did yoga, uh, they laid in bed, uh, playing with their phones, and then ultimately they went to bed. And before they went to bed on the second floor of this brick uh, structure, and not necessarily brick, but marble floors, like three inch thick marble floors with two inch thick luxury carpeting over the top of it. So I don't know about you, but when I grew up and I walked down the hallways, creak, 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 Greg, I lived in an old house built in the like 1800s, right? Uh, this was not that kind of a house. Uh, so he had a kind of a sleep apnea, I learned uh, later, where uh, he would have to have uh, no air conditioning on. And this is the middle of their summer in February. Uh, and uh, so it was very hot. So they had these fans that they would put in the door, leave the door open a crack and then close these blackout shades around it because he needed perfect darkness and um, he needed ventilation. But these fans were very, very loud. 
He's sleeping on the left side of the bed closest to the to the door. She's sleeping on the right side of the bed closest to the hallway that goes down the hallway by 50 feet and to the right where there's a, a toilet room. Uh, and inside of that toilet room is a spa, a sink. And then there's another door where there's the toilet behind that door. OK, uh, that's a very important part of this case. Um, and uh, they matter of fact, before he goes to bed, uh, he takes a pair of jeans and he puts it over his stereo because he wanted to block out the little green LED light that had the time on it because he was very light sensitive. Mm-hmm. So they go to sleep sometime in the middle of the night, a couple hours later, sometime before 2 a.m., I believe. Riva gets up out of bed. We believe the evidence shows with her phone and goes to the bathroom. And when she goes to the bathroom, Oscar's still sleeping, does not aware that she got up to go out of the bed. She goes to the bathroom and in the bathroom, there's a wooden um, window. And when you slide that wooden window open, it makes a screeching sound. And that screeching sound scared Oscar and woke him up. He woke up. He goes to his uh, side of the bed, grabs his pistol and starts walking down the hallway saying, Riva, somebody's in the house. Riva, call the police. Somebody's in the house. Mm. And he's cre- and he's on his stumps. Mm. He put his legs on. He's on his stumps. And that's a very important thing as well. It was a vulnerable you know, moment for him, mm-hmm. uh, you know, waking up in the middle of the night. Now, mind you, these houses at the time in Africa, in South Africa, uh, they were behind, um, you know, 12-foot brick walls. And on top of those 12-foot brick walls was barbed wire. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't always to keep the lions out. Although you could hear the lions roar at night in that wow. area. This is South Africa. This isn't Detroit. This isn't Chicago. It's not L.A. Um, it's a very unique situation. And you really have to look at this case from that filter, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so he gets up out of bed. He grabs his weapon. He goes down the hallway and he's screaming for Reba to call the police. Now, at this time, I believe is where the critical misinterpretation of the case happens. Reba also being very conscious of their safety. She was a celebrity at that time too. And she's dating one of the, you know, the country's most uh, acclaimed celebrity. He's like LeBron James, Leonardo DiCaprio rolled into one. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's how popular he was. So, and he had had crimes in the past where he'd been kidnapped by the police and put in the back of the car in handcuffs and bounced around. Um, you know, he had been robbed before. He had guns. He was very conscious of that. So there might be some paranoia and there might be some irrational fear. But that plays into his state of mind when the confrontation, I believe, happens. Yeah. Um, so he's going down that hallway on his stumps with the gun and he's saying, Reva, call the police. There's somebody in the house and he's getting closer into the bathroom. Reva then retreats from the bathroom into the toilet room and slams the door because I believe she thought the intruder was coming toward her because Oscar's coming toward her. Oscar thinks she's the intruder. Mm. And then as he gets to the corner where he turns to look into the bathroom, he's using the corner of the wall as cover, thereby also showing to me that he wasn't attacking somebody who was unarmed. He thought somebody was in the house and he heard that bathroom door close. Reva didn't say a word, according to Oscar. And then as um, he's now in the corner of the bathroom using the wall as cover. He's on his stumps. He's got his nine millimeter pointed toward the bathroom door. And it, now Reba thinks he's screaming at this point, Reba, call the police. 
Reva, call the police. There's somebody in the house. Do you think she was too scared to say anything at that point? Like she didn't know, you know, maybe thought there was an intruder. Um, I I know there's two sides to the story, but is that what, uh, is that kind of what he claimed that she was probably in fear and that's why she didn't respond or say, I don't think he got into her state of mind. I don't think that that was allowed in as a part of testimony that he could speculate as to her state of mind. But I think I can deduce uh, that that's where the misperception was because everything Oscar did, there is some physical evidence at this particular point that I think verifies that he was in fear. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, if, if you're going to shoot your girlfriend, you're not in fear that she's going to shoot you back because you're the only one with a gun. Right. Mm-hmm. So why are you using the wall as cover? And how do I know he was using that wall as cover other than him telling me that? Well, when we went there, we were able to find we went there shortly after. And then the police also independently confirmed that there was gunshot residue on the wall as if you were using that corner for cover. So that means that gun was the only thing peeking out behind that that brick wall into the bathroom, which to, to me demonstrates he was trying to have cover when he when he was uh, approaching whoever he thought he was approaching. Right. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't make sense to me that he was taking cover from an unarmed woman. Uh, and he and so now at this particular time, he says he hears a screech. Mm-hmm. And in that bathroom was a metal magazine rack. And in the bathroom, there was no carpet. It was a marble floor. And if you've ever taken a metal magazine rack and moved it without picking it up, it's going to make a screeching sound on that marble floor. And the reason she did that, she moved that metal um, magazine rack, I believe, to take cover behind the porcelain toilet. It was a big porcelain toilet. And she was not that big of a girl. So she could, like, you crouch down and use the toilet as cover. And I think that's what she was trying to do. And but that noise of that screeching sound and you'll see it in the reconstruction that I sent you. I actually do that same thing with the same magazine rack in the same bathroom. I open up that window in the same bathroom and you can hear those noises as a trigger of somebody who is paranoid for their safety would think now there's an open window right in the bathroom. There's there's a ladder beneath the open window from painters that had been there that same day. Uh, and now somebody's in the bathroom and you hear that noise. And when he hears that noise of the moving magazine rack, that's what I believe uh, initiated a sympathetic reflex response. And he shot four times. Wow. So this all happens um, according to, you know, to, to his side of the story, I guess, um, because they're laying in bed. He's got this light sensitivity. Everything is off. All the lights are shut off. She just has to get up, presumably, presumably to go pee or something, goes right. to the bathroom, opens this window. That window triggers him. And that's how this whole thing unfolds. I believe so. Yeah. Wow. I believe the evidence suggests that as well, because he did, in fact, have a doctor testify that he did have the sleep apnea. Right. Mm-hmm. So he wakes up in this sudden, you know, state of, of being. And, you know, when you just wake up in the middle of the night, you hear, you, you know, you're startled. You're not you know, calm and assessing things. And he had this reaction and then, and then with that magazine rack and then somebody that he didn't quickly identify being behind and then using that as cover. And then a lot of people ask me, well, well, he would have just heard her get out of bed. Mm 
No, this is, I, I was on that bed. There, no bounce on that bed. There's no springs on that bed. This was a luxury mattress. You could hear her walk down the hall. No, you couldn't. You couldn't hear an elephant walk down that hall. Marble floors with thick luxury carpeting. You could not hear. It was like walking through, you know, a gallery. You're not hearing anybody in bare feet walking on that, especially a 110 pound woman. Yeah. Um, so he fires four times into the bathroom. And yeah. then um, when does he, you know, when does he realize the mistake that he has just made? Well, after that, he's still screaming for Reva to call the police. Mm-hmm. And then he backs up out and goes back into the bedroom, opens up the shades and realizes she's not in bed. Mm. That's when he starts thinking, oh, my God what just happened? What did I just do? Wow. He opens up, he opens up the, um, the, the blinds and he screams, help, somebody help me. And when he screams, he has a very high pitched scream. And this is consistent with neighbors some 500 yards away who were up at that time on their patio, having a cigarette. Uh, they said they heard screams from a woman and the prosecution tried to make that as saying that there was a fight. And then those same witnesses said they heard shots fired by silence and screaming and then more shots. And I can explain that. So after he screams for help, after the first four shots, he puts his legs on. He grabs his cricket bat, which is next to the bedroom door, goes into the bathroom because the door is locked. And he goes into the bathroom and he starts breaking down the door, a wood door with a wood cricket bat. Now, I did an experiment where I take a two by four and I break. I didn't even get a cricket bat in, in Cleveland. So I take a two by four and I break down a, a wooden door at, at, in, a, in a lab and, and just record the sound. And then I compare that to gunshots. And from a distance, you can't tell the difference. Wow. And so I think him breaking down the door with the cricket bat is consistent with the neighbors hearing two sets of shots separated by screaming. Wow. Let's take a half step back here. Sure. Uh, you you live a world away from South Africa, as people can tell over your shoulder in Cleveland. <laughs> um, how the hell did you get into this whole field? I mean, this is interesting. What's your background? What got you interested in this? Because this is not a lot of people do what you do. No, I mean, I, I think I kind of invented what I do uh, from the standpoint. I mean, I started off as a photographer and I started doing work uh, as a contractor with the Cleveland Police Department back in the days of, you know, regular photography, uh, where I did some work doing photographic reconstruction of uh, a police involved shooting case. And that first case really brought my interest uh, to what I thought maybe what I was going to do. I didn't know what I was going to do at that point. But, I was but are you like, were you, were you like an artist? Were you more of a creative? Were you interested in uh, crime or did you kind of just fall into it? Yeah, I kind of fell into it. I thought maybe I was going to go to law school and be a lawyer. I worked as a paralegal uh, mm-hmm. for a, a personal injury law firm. And then I worked uh, for a paralegal for a criminal law firm. And then I worked as a, uh, a, a, a clerk for the court system all yeah. while I was a young married man having children and working three jobs. You know, at one point I worked at a gas station, blockbuster video and a law firm wow. while my wife was pregnant with our second child. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I still hadn't graduated from college at that point. Matter of fact, I still, I don't even have an advanced degree. Wow. Um, but I got involved through my, you know, uh, love of photography to get this opportunity to do this 
photo reconstruction. I didn't even know it was a reconstruction at the time. I did a photo kind of uh, a workup of the shooting case. Anyway, it went to court and it was a big success and, and the news covered it. And I was like, okay, that's what I want to do. Right. And then later I ended up um, maybe five years later, I ended up taking well over 700 hours of uh, training uh, from institutions like the University of New Haven School of Forensic Science, uh, where I got to meet Dr. Henry Lee. And he and I became friends. Uh, he kind of became a mentor of mine. I started doing graphics for his case. At that time, I was a self-taught uh, animator. Uh, and I would start doing exhibits for him. And then he allowed, he gave me an exception to go through one of his advanced shooting scene reconstruction classes, where at that time I'd really developed um, the forensic animation where I'd started my own company. I had people working for me. We were making forensic animations for car crashes and police shootings and, and airplane crashes. We did uh, medical negligence was something that we did a lot of. Um, so I became very intimate with, you know, human, uh, you know, factors and uh, the biology of what happens when you get shot. Uh, we did a lot of shooting medical illustrations for criminal cases for diagrams and so forth. Um, but anyway, um, you know, so I kind of made a name for myself in the world of forensic animation. I think I coined the term forensic animation back in the uh, mid 2000s. Wow. Uh, because it was before that it was just demonstrative evidence where it was up to the lawyer really to direct you as to, hey, I want an illustration that shows this. And that's what we would do. We would take orders. We were artists. The lawyer wanted a diagram of the police of the of the car accident where it shows the, the all the blood and all this stuff right and he's like make it real bloody because i want to get something from the jury you know but that was just demonstrative we were order taker and then i realized when i started my company i was like well there's a gap in the field where there should be something more reliable than a demonstrative exhibit that's directed by a lawyer how about i put something together based on what i've learned over the last 10 years in the business of uh, putting a scientific process, and this came from Dr. Lee, you know, uh, putting the scientific process to the art of animation. And then another five years go by, and now I'm being called to testify as to the reliability of the process to create the animation. And then from there, I developed my own independent um, view where, um, you know, I would say at that point, um, you know, now I'm directing the project and it's based on my opinion and what I've learned and what is what makes sense to me. Uh, and that's really how the whole forensic animation thing you know, came to be. Well, and and so, so how many people work uh, in the evidence room now? Uh, right now we have six full time employees uh, plus myself. Wow. So no more blockbuster for you. Good for you. Yeah, no more Blackbuster. Although I miss those days of Blackbuster video, though, man. You know, please be kind. Rewind. <laughs> um, so this is literally, uh, like you said, it's like the O.J. Simpson tribe. I and mean, this is like the biggest thing uh, in the world coming out of yeah. South Africa. How do they, how does Oscar, and I assume you're obviously doing this for the defense, for Oscar Pistorius' yeah. defense team. How do they track you down and uh, how do you literally end up going over there? Well, uh, they called Dr. Henry Lee and asked him if he wanted the case. And he said, no, I'm too busy. I'm not interested. Mm -hmm. Call Scott Roeder. So they did. And they hired me. Well, by the way, I interviewed Dr. Henry Lee on this very show. So if wow. you guys want to check that interview out, check it out. That guy is 
course, from O.J. Simpson and uh, a legend uh, of all legends. And there's an institution literally named after him. Yeah, I literally have a Mount Rushmore of forensic experts and Dr. Lee is right on it. Yep. Yep. For sure. Um, So. Dr. Lee is kind enough to kind of give you the proverbial breaks that they say call Scott Roeder and they call you. And uh, how soon after do you end up in South Africa? Ten days. Wow. So you go down to South Africa and you go alone. You bring part of your team or you do two members of my team. I brought uh, an attorney, a good friend of mine named Marcus Sidoti, who's now one of the you know biggest, uh, most successful uh, police involved shooting lawyers in you know, all of the Midwest. Uh, he's got his own law firm here and, and he's uh, very successful. And then my other uh, art director at the time, Philip McCloskey, uh, I brought those two with me. Wow. So you go to South Africa and now you're working for the defense and you go through this and take us through the process of how you prepare all this uh, to go to trial. How, um, this is this is obvious. You're going down there for when this trial begins, I assume. No, I went down for the investigation. Uh, okay. So it would have been well, uh, like five months before the trial is when I went down. Okay. To collect the data, to interview people, to interview Oscar. Uh, and, um, you know, I think that's where this really where I learned so much. I was so young. I, I felt like I was so young. I'm, I'm, I was probably early 30s, I guess, at the time. But, um, uh, mid-30s, I guess. Uh, but still in the first half of my career, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe the beginning of the second quarter, you know, if we're going to use football terms. Uh, So I was still learning things, you know, Uh, and I'd never really had that kind of a spotlight uh, on me. Uh, So when I landed in South Africa, you know, we'd go through customs and, you know, I happen to have a lot of tattoos and whatnot. At that time, I didn't have as many as I have now. Uh, But, um, uh, and so they were questioning me, what is this tattoo? What does this mean? You know? Who are you? And then everybody knew because the day before I got there, the Pretoria Times, and I'll send you the article if you want. uh, The Pretoria Times ran an article on the front page that says Oscar hires dream team. And then my picture right on the front page. I don't know how I got (laughs) called to be the dream team, probably because I was related to Dr. Henry Lee, you know? Yeah. Send us Uh, that photo for sure. So, um, So now you're kind of almost a bit of a celebrity in South Africa because, again, this is the biggest thing going. And uh, how do you even begin? uh, Do you start with Oscar? Like, how do you begin this sort of investigation? Uh, Actually, we don't start with Oscar until like day three. Uh, The first day we get there, we're jet lagged. I'd never been on an airplane for 21 hours before. Uh, You know, so we sleep, get some food, shower up and whatnot. And then uh, we uh, get escorted to go. First thing I want to say was like, take me to the scene. Uh, the blood was still there. Uh, the original furniture was still there. Nothing had been moved uh, it, except for the bathroom door that had been shot out and then broken out. That was taken away to the crime lab. So we were there during the day. We got there, I think, nine o'clock in the morning. We stayed there until four o'clock in the morning, my, me and my team, because we wanted to see one the neighborhood. We wanted to view, you know, what it would be like from the witnesses that we had, because we had the witness testimony. So we, I went over to that house. Well, what can you hear over there? How far does the the the, the noise uh, travel at night? Um, you know, how close are the houses? Was there really a ladder um, by the bathroom window? Was the 
basement window or the first floor window actually broken uh, and still broken from a previous attempt of a burglary uh, at their house. Um, and, um, you know, I wanted to do all of that legwork. And then as it got dark, as it got nighttime, uh, we started setting up the cameras so that we could do a uh, reconstruction of the of the sound of the lighting. Uh, can you hear somebody walk? What's up with this window? Let's look at the screech in the back. And we set all of that up and I did a dry walkthrough uh, in the actual conditions, the same exact time of day with the fans, with the curtains on the bed in the carpeting, going to the bathroom, opening up the window, closing the door, screeching the, the thing to see what it was like. And it was eerie. It was so eerie. I felt, and I was in fact, walking in his footsteps and felt the gravity of what had just occurred there a month earlier. And uh, so what was, um, what was this just to refresh me? What was the state's case? Obviously they say that, uh, he murdered her. And ultimately, I know he was convicted. Um, and I think he's still serving time, right? Yeah. I mean, the state's case was Oscar was a jealous boyfriend. Uh, and he thought Reva was talking to some rugby player. He got mad. He screamed at her. He chased her into the bathroom and he shot her down in bloody murder. That's what the state's case was. Okay. Uh, I think that's total bull. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think that's total bull. I, I think... And now, ultimately, at trial, now, they don't have a jury system in South Africa. They had three judges. Okay. They had a head judge and then two side judges that worked as basically their assistant judge. Huh. Um, Do you but, go back down for the trial? Well, that's an interesting part of the story. Okay. I was set to testify. Uh, the judge made a ruling. Uh, and then behind the scenes, the lawyer told me, he said, she does not want any Americans involved in their justice system. And the judge would not let me testify um, on the case. But uh, let me finish what beginning part of that little story is um, the. Oh, I I forgot where I was there. I apologize. So so you're going down, you're doing the investigation. Oh, Um, right. right. You know, you're Um, going through all you say it's really eerie because you can you're literally walking in his footsteps, which is ironic because doesn't have feet. But I get what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't mean it. <laughs> uh, and uh, and we record all of that. And, and I felt so at, at that point in time, I hadn't met with Oscar yet, but I, I did get to read his statement. And um, and we and then we spent the next whole day there at the scene taking photography, uh, documenting all, every drop of blood, all of that. And then the second day, uh, the police laboratory came with the remnants of the door in a body bag because I needed them to put that door back up so that I could do the trajectory analysis through the door, you know, from where I thought he might've been standing. So this is where the science part came in. So, but they brought the door back in like 20 pieces. Right. So uh, I stand there and I try to tell these guys, like, I need you to put the door back, put it together. We got to hold it together. I got to find these bullet holes. And, and they were do, uh, you know, good enough to, to accommodate me for that so that I could do the bullet trajectory. And as we're doing it, the, the police captain came up to me <laughs> and he said, uh, he looked at me very seriously in my face and he goes, I had a dream about you. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> uh, uh, it, it was really, you know, but there was a lot of spotlight uh, there. You know, I was a big focus of attention there. 
And I think that's one of the reasons why the judge ultimately would not let me testify in that case. Uh, do you have, do you have media like kind of trailing you to the hotel trying yeah. to, ask yeah, yeah, we did. We did. And, you know, and it was interesting too, you know, we stayed late that night too. And then we got driven home by our escort as we're driving back to the to place where we were staying, which is maybe 45 minutes away from where the house was, uh, you know, I mean, there were pickup trucks with guys in the back of the truck holding guns, you know, like driving next to us on the highway. Not for our protection, by the way. Uh -huh. um, you know, this is not. It's not Cleveland. No, man, it's not. Yeah. It was, Cleveland's a tough town. You know, we're yeah. tough people and we've been through a lot. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, we're still here and we're still trying our best to do what we can do. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I, I definitely was a fish out of water. Uh, and you know, it, it shakes you a little bit like that. Um, I'd never been in that situation before. I literally felt like at times we were in a bit of a, you know, third world country at that time. Yeah. yeah. So, um, eventually you get the opportunity to speak directly to Oscar. Is that right? And is yeah. he, he's in a, like a holding cell at this point? No, or? no, no. He was out, uh, on, uh, his own recognizance at that time. He was, uh, staying, uh, with his uncle, uh, Arnold at, in Pretoria, which is, you know, about an hour away uh, uh -huh. for where he lived at that time. Uh, and, and it was a, I mean, the most beautiful mansion you could ever think of, uh, you would think like Oprah Winfrey lived there or something, you know, it was like the biggest estate, you know, hundreds of acres, probably. I don't know. Was that from, from Oscar's wealth? Like, Cause the family wasn't wealthy, right? No, no, no. The family was really poor. Matter of fact, Oscar ended up getting adopted by his uncle as a teenager because his mother, his father wasn't in the picture. And then his mother had some issues and I think she passed away. Uh, so uh, the uncle Arnold, independently wealthy uh, philanthropist. Uh, he also owns, um, I think, the world's largest population of black rhinos. Uh, <laughs> wow. uh, housing, real estate, I mean, a tycoon, you know, probably a billionaire. I don't know. Uh, wow. You know, but but a very interesting guy. So tell sure. me about that. So you guys pull up to this estate, to Oprah Winfrey's mansion in Victoria. <laughs> and uh, how does that meeting start? Well, it started with a tour, yeah, kind of a welcome to South Africa, welcome to our our estate. Um, let me show you around. So the first thing they did was show us around the backyard. Uh, when I say backyard, I'm in <laughs> backyard, right? So we're walking around, took like 45 minutes and he's showing us these lemon trees and these orange trees. And, and then we get to this one area and he's like, oh, I see that waterfall there. Uh, the uncle's telling me Oscar wasn't with us at this time. It was just the uncle. And he's like, see that waterfall there? He's like, I said, yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful waterfall. And he's like, I had, I found it in Namibia and I had it disassembled and replicated <laughs> I brought, I was like, it's not a copy of the, no, I took the actual waterfall and brought it here. I'm like, wow, <laughs> you, you took a waterfall. That's amazing. You know, and they had this big pond with swans in it. And it was just the most beautiful thing. Any black rhinos on Oprah's property there? Not there. Uh, we did go see the black rhinos later, uh, the, you know, several days later when I, when I ended up taking a safari at, uh, uh, the, the, the big uh, Kruger National Park. Um, By the way, I, I went to safari for my anniversary in Serengeti uh, in Tanzania, but uh, they say the rhinos are the most, they're cute, kind of, but they're vicious, man. They'll charge your ass. I, well, you know, I did learn that the most dangerous animal in all of Africa is the hippo.
The hippo. That's it. You're right. The hippo. Yeah. yeah the hippo they kill more people in Africa than any animal. Yeah, they're lightning quick for the being big and fat looking, right? And uh, <laughs> like you see, they had the crush power. Where they're, they're so aggressive too. That's um, crazy. Yeah, that's yeah. what I was thinking. The hippo. You're right. <laughs> um, so this guy, so Arnold, takes you around, shows you his waterfall, and uh, he says, more, I, "I'll tell you one little story before before we get into my interview with Oscar." So, so we come inside, and then we come back to the. He shows me the inside of the house, which is just amazing. I mean, it just. Think of something out of like, um, I don't know, Italy in the 1700s from a king. I don't know. Something like that. It was really spectacular. Uh, brass and gold and all these frames and things and all animal heads everywhere. Uh, and he takes me to the guest book at the front and he wants me to sign the guest book. So I'm like, Oh, great. I could sign a guest book. So he gives me this really beautiful pen. I'm like, wow. I thought it was like the Holy grail or something. And he opens up this gold leafed guest book flipping through all the pages. And he wanted me to see the names. He's like, Oh, here is uh, Nelson Mandela. Mm-hmm. Here is uh, the president of France. Uh, here is Oprah Winfrey. Here is this and that. And, uh, and, and then I'm about to sign my name. Uh, and, uh, and he's like, Anderson Cooper wanted to come, but we don't like him. So we told him to get out of here. I don't like him either. So that's yeah, good. I, I, I mean, I think he's a monger of, yeah. uh, but frankly, I think he's probably a, an agent of Operation Mockingbird, you know, it's, frankly. I think uh, he's overrated, but that's me. I don't know. I just don't trust anything that comes out of his mouth. Uh, but I uh, see this. We got you and me. We got the news, man. You know, I don't bias. I'm a dog without a pack. You know, it's just you just got to talk out of your heart. You know, that's it's not a, for me. It's not politics. I just it takes him, as I like to say, like 19 news cycles to get one question out. He, he should be better at his job by now. But that's yeah. Well, I don't think his job is to inform. His job is to shape the news, you know? Yeah, 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 exactly. But he's got a great haircut. I'll give him that. You yeah. know? <laughs> so anyway, I got to sign the book. And then uh-huh. anyway, anyway, it was down to business at that particular time. And uh, I got to sit with Oscar outside, uh, just me and him to start. I didn't really want – he was very nervous, very shy, you know, very – you know, so there was a little bit of, like, warm-up talk. Hi, how are you? What, you know, where are you from? This and that, all this stuff. Um, but he seemed to know everything about me at that particular point. Uh, I'm sure they did some research at that point. Um, so I started walking him through or had him walk me through what happened that day. And we had a written out like kind of a thing that he was prepared in advance and gave me a copy and, and he was starting to through it. And as we went through this, he got up from the table and ran to the bathroom and threw up like three times. Wow. I mean, he was shook. Wow. He was really shook. Just from recalling the story, you mean? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, that's really awkward for you, too, in a weird way. Were you just sitting there just kind of like empathetic? You can't help but not feel emotion when you're seeing somebody at their worst moment in their entire life. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't help but feel sorry in a way. And I think that was a challenge for me, too, was controlling my admiration for him controlling my gratitude of being hired and getting the opportunity and balancing that with impartiality. Because remember the whole reason I started evidence room is to be an impartial, independent uh, uh, creator of forensic animation. Right. And and that's gotta be tough because like you said, first of all, he's a world famous figure. He's a world-class athlete. Um, and he's accused of this horrible crime. 
So you do have to keep yourself balanced that way. Um, did you feel like you were doing a good job of that? Or do you feel like you're getting tugged on in terms of like trying to like, I don't, you know, you know, trying to make the situation fit his narrative. Like you ever feel that pressure kind of not until later, okay. not until later at that time. I, I was just so, uh, I don't know, happy to be there. Yeah. Happy to have the opportunity. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but you have gratitude in that situation, right? You know, you get yeah. an opportunity, you know, you want to, you want to do a good job, you know? So I think it definitely threw my mind. I'm like, Oh, we're going to win this case for you and, and whatnot in my you know, head. But I'm like, ah, oh, maybe I shouldn't have said that, you know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. I was a younger man at the time. You learn lessons. I mean, I've learned that lesson moving forward in all of my cases that I've done since then is to keep my emotion in check and not like the person, you know, that you're working with. Right. Cause I shouldn't have to, you know, or if you do like them, you gotta be able to set it aside. Right. Yeah. Which I believe I did in this case. Uh, matter of fact, I think I'm the only person that's still coming out on the record and going through this forensic animation, going through the evidence and demonstrating the reasonableness of uh, him being not guilty of intentional murder with menace. Mm. And, and that was the result of the first trial of the trial. He was found not guilty of murder and he was found guilty of culpable homicide or negligent homicide, which he was sentenced to like three years house arrest. Mm. That was the original. It was a huge victory. Huge okay. victory. It was on appeal. The government, you have to remember, this is not the United States of America. The yeah. government appealed that conviction. And without another trial, by just putting in pleadings, they were able to get that, I thought, what I thought was a victory, vacated, and then him be found guilty of murder on paper without a new trial. So there was no trial. It was just through like an appellate process with motions. Yeah. That's yeah. crazy. It is um, crazy. In the first trial, though, since you didn't testify, um, how was your evidence room material presented? What, did you have, did you like make a video for them? I mean, what was Look, it here? So what I ended up doing, this is how I uh, kind of earned a bit of a reputation in Australia after I knew that. I wasn't going to be allowed to testify. I kind of felt like he was being railroaded. So I released my reconstruction uh, to a news station in Australia that got worldwide coverage uh, mm -hmm. on a documentary uh, involving Ross Colhart uh, yeah. called, called Running Scared. Hey, Ross Colhart is the one that just interviewed the UFO whistleblower. We That's go right. Good wow. friend of mine. I have his book right here in wow. plain sight on my desk. Uh, we talk all the time. Uh, he's, wow. he's a great man, uh, and a, a tremendous investigative journalist. I've now I've done uh, four cases for Channel Seven News in Australia, where he's an anchor. It's like their version of sixty Minutes or whatever. Well, so now no. maybe Scott Roder will help me get Ross Coldheart on Surviving the Survivor. I, I, I'm sure. Yeah, I just make a phone call. I'll have mine there for you for sure. No problem. Love yeah. it. Love it. Yeah, he's oh. a great guy. Uh, matter of fact, he's doing a, a TV show here in Cleveland by remote um, oh. next week about the whistleblower case. Yeah, it's a huge story. Uh, we have, we've actually been doing shows on it. So um, so you release this in Australia that and that blows up in, in, uh, in a good way for you. You, yeah. you get some uh, credibility and uh, and, yeah. and some notoriety from that. And 
whether whether the judge liked it or not in South Africa, they got to see it. Mm. And I think ultimately it was factored in to the ruling of the first trial judge, which was not guilty of murder. Because it makes sense, Joel. The reconstruction makes sense. It was the truth. I believe it's the truth. It's still the truth today. I'm the only one coming out saying that that's the truth. He's been in jail almost 10 years now for an accidental homicide. He loved that woman. He sh- I was investigating in that bedroom, and there was uh, something behind the TV. I didn't know what it was. Uh, so, but I'm a thorough investigator, so I take this poster board like a shadow box canvas whatever and it was turned backwards and i take it out and i flip it around and it was a poster that oscar made for reva for valentine's day with all of their pictures being in love and all of these wonderful sayings i want to be with you forever i love you all this stuff it was like it brought a tear to my eye like this guy loved her he loved her he told me a story joel before we started talking about the actual events, I said, tell me about you and Reva. Tell me about your relationship. And uh, I, I remember him saying this. Uh, he, he said he had this real high, like soft voice, very humble voice. He's like, well, you know, Reva, uh, you know, sometimes I forget to brush my teeth. So, you know, whenever she would go to the bathroom, she'd, you know, go in there and she'd put the toothpaste on the toothbrush to make sure I brushed my teeth before I went to bed, you know, and we laughed a little bit. And then he told me another story where, you know, him and her went to uh, some kind of a comedy show, but he didn't know it. It was a comedy show where the entire audience was women. And then the the comic was a woman. So it was like an all woman comedy show. And he was the only man in the entire place. And the girl on the stage pointed him out because he was a huge celebrity and uh, like we're teasing him and, and, you know, uh, all this stuff. And, and so she set him up for that, you know, like as a little joke and he was laughing. He was just telling me how much he loved her. And, and uh, I really felt that that was sincere. I've been in love before Joel, you know, I was married. I love my wife and uh, um, you know, she's gone now. She, she passed away seven years ago, Sorry, uh, but you know, I loved her and I know what it's like when you talk about somebody you love, especially that's gone. There's emotion there. It's a deep emotion when you think back on this person that you loved and is no longer with you. And in his situation, it was because of something he did. He was sick. He was sick over what happened. Was there ever any – had he ever acted violently prior to that? Well, that was part of the prosecution's case. You have to remember he's a 22-, 23-year-old guy at the time. Mm -hmm. He's got money he didn't have before in his life. His own money, not his uncle's money, his own money. Yeah. you know, he's on cover of Sports Illustrated and all that stuff, going to America all the time. It's a big deal for somebody in South Africa to come to the United States and, you know, be a celebrity here, too. I mean, that's huge for them. Um, so, yeah, a little bit of ego. You know, he got into guns. Um, you know, he would go to the gun range and shoot pumpkins. And, hey, I went to the gun range. I go to the gun range all the time and shoot pumpkins. Every Thanksgiving, I get together with my family at the corn farm outside of Cleveland with shotguns and we go skeet shooting. Mm-hmm. It's fun. I do it all the time. I do shooting all the time for my job. Right? right. But it's fun when you do it in a control. And that's what he did. He was just being a guy yeah, doing a gun and a thing. But the prosecution made it out like he was some gun nut testosterone crazed, you know, maniac on drugs. Well, he was not. He was a disciplined professional Olympic level athlete who was young. 
he's breaking all kinds of barriers with the being a double double amputee. Um, that's it's such a uh, a crazy outcome. So in that first trial, uh, you said it's a it's a you know three judges as opposed to a jury system. Did all three judges uh, rule the same way in that first trial? That's not how it works. Only the main judge has the vote. Okay. The, the two other judges are assistant judges, so they yeah. help evaluate. They come up with help with questions. They go over testimony. They admit help admit evidence into the record, and so on and so forth. But the head judge makes the final determination. And uh, so now, what is he in light in prison for life at this point? Does he have a uh, an exit date or? Uh... That's a great question. Uh, he is under evaluation for release right now. Uh, so he had, uh, by order of the court, he needs the blessing of Reva's mom and dad before he gets out. So he has been going through a series of controlled meetings. The mom doesn't want to meet with him, but the father, Mr. Seam, he does and has. And I think he feels Oscar is contrite for what happened and genuinely sorry. I don't think the mom has forgiven him yet. And I think it's up to the mom, whether he gets out at this time. So if she, if she was to say, I forgive this guy, let him out, they would release him. I think they probably would. Yeah. Unbelievable. Um, have you had any contact with him since? Have you ever, you know, since then you, have, you haven't. And, but do you, do you follow the case still? Yeah, absolutely. I did a couple of follow-up episodes for it on my podcast. Um, and the one I think I titled it, Why Oscar Pistorius is Not Guilty of Murder. <laughs> you know, And I, I sat down, I did a two-hour interview on uh, 30 for 30 with ESPN, and we had a doc come out on it on Oscar there uh, as well. So, you know, listen, I haven't been shy about what my feelings are on the case. I feel like I have a command over the physical and forensic evidence and the testimony on that case, <coughs> excuse me. And, you know, I firmly believe that he is being held in prison way longer than he should have. I thought maybe the first sentence was too, was a little bit light, you know, cause even in the United States, if you accidentally kill somebody, even if it's not criminally, you know, murder, you, you might have to do some time, but he had no prior crimes ever. Uh, I mean, he was, a, but you know, how they how they like to, you know, the bigger they are, the harder they fall uh, mm -hmm. type of mentality. It really likes to tear people down. Uh, and I think maybe there's a little bit of discrimination in there as well. Um, you have to remember, this is in a shift of the country from white controlled to black controlled. And there was some retribution possibly going on. I, I don't know. I, yeah. I'm not an expert on African politics, yeah. but I can look at what was going on. I know what I felt when I was there. But I tell you what, the, the, the black African people are the most loving, beautiful people in the I've ever met in my entire life. I, went, I ran out of clothes while I was there, right? Mm -hmm. So I go to a local sporting goods store and I buy just, oh, that's a nice looking T-shirt. It was a jersey of a soccer team. And I wore it, I was wearing it the whole day and whatnot. And uh, all of the all the African, all the people on the street, they would come up to me and give me hugs. Oh, you're a fan. Oh, good job. <laughs> What I, what I didn't realize, it was the black African soccer team. 
and the white people don't wear that shirt. Oh, wow. And so they saw me wearing that shirt. Everybody's coming up, giving me hugs and, and all this stuff, and like high fives. And I was like, what is going on? Why is all these people giving me this so much love? And it's because I was wearing the, the wrong shirt. And I was like, I'm glad I wore this shirt. It was wonderful. I'll tell you, some of the nicest people I ever met was in uh, Tanzania and Rwanda. Some people who don't go to Africa are missing out in uh, their lifetime. The, the safari is incredible. Beautiful people. Um, yeah, you'll you, you, you really get a sense of the human spirit, of perseverance, and what poverty really is. We don't have poor people in America. I'm sorry. There are no poor people in America. If you have running water, if you have access to heat, if you have access to food, go to Africa and then come back here. And I, I don't want to hear your complaints. Did you uh, did you take any backlash um, for kind of uh, being an expert uh, witness uh, in his favor in South Africa or no? Uh, well, I, I think the media treated me pretty fairly on that. I, I think the media was on Oscar's side. Uh, the prosecution uh, and a certain, you know, I think political aspect of it didn't like me and, and took some shots. Um, ultimately that led to the judge, I think, making her decision because you have to remember this was a very 10 year old government mm. at the time, a 10 year old government, a 10 year old justice system. They barely had any history in their current time at that time uh, of even of an appellate process because they're just don't make it up as they were going. Right. Uh, mm. it's a young justice system. And I felt there was a sense of national pride. You know, they didn't want somebody like they, they thought of me as like this hot shot coming in from America to tell them their business. And um, I think some people didn't like it. Wow. So there you go. Uh, this was a uh, special, an SCS special surviving my biggest case. And this is a massive case uh, about Oscar Pistorius. Uh, the best guest in his suit looking his best is uh, Scott Roeder, founder of the Evidence Room. He is an internationally recognized evidence specialist, as you just heard who's consulted over 1,500 cases since 2001, probably none bigger than the Oscar Pistorius case, but uh, Scott's just getting going. Uh, in addition to all that 3D modeling he does, you heard him talk about it. He hosts a podcast called Crime Scene Time Machine. That's a great name, Crime Scene Time Machine. Check it out. Uh, Scott Roeder, greatly appreciate it. We're going to have you back on the show soon enough. Love you, America. Love you, South Africa. Love you, Cleveland. Final seconds of the game, a chance to score and the chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. <coughs> Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run and grow your business without the struggle. 
Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks. 